Our scripture reading this morning is Lamentations 3, Lamentations 3, verses 25 through 39. Our focus will be on verses 25 through 33. It's found on page 873 of your pew Bibles. As you're turning there, just to set up a bit of the context, context, we're not going to read again the beginning of chapter 3, but chapter 3 starts the central poem of Lamentations that expands on the acrostic and is meant to be taken as the center of the book, the highlight, we could call it. And it's here the prophet speaks. In the first 18 verses was a deep lament, a personal lament, and the rest of chapter 3 continues as you almost see the, the wheels in the prophet's mind working and unfolding as he's leading himself in the right direction and doing so in word and in a poem meant to bring all of God's people along this path with him. We began to look at last time the goodness of God, the character of God, and he continues that in these verses. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Oh, Father, as we turn to your word, we know that hidden here or perhaps better put, revealed here, is your glory, is a picture of you from the mindset of one in deep distress. And it's because of that distress and that suffering that we flock to it, even in the midst of our own. And it's because of the distress and suffering that we get to see your glory from a different vantage point, from a vantage point of deep trial and pain, and yet it is this that helps highlight just how glorious you are, how faithful you are. And Father, it is our desire that we would this morning even just catch a glimpse of this. Our minds can't truly process all that you reveal here, but that we might be able to in part taste and see who you are here. Reveal it, and Holy Spirit, work it in us, we pray in your great name. Amen. Lamentations 3, verse 25 and following. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Thus far in God's holy word, may he bless it to us. I would ask you to keep your Bibles open today as we will go through these verses, verse by verse, and see these words to God's suffering people. Brothers and sisters, this story might be one familiar to you, might be one that you faced or seen and witnessed displayed in your own life. It was another hour in the funeral visitation line. The day was dragging on. Mr. Smith had lost his daughter, 
but he wondered how many passing by truly understood his pain. The rest of the family and friends were worried about him. He had not shown any emotion since the news of his daughter's death had reached him. He had seemed to meet all with a cold silence, as if he was not processing or understand it, as if he was keeping something in check. And as the hours in the line passed by, these thoughts went through his head until down the line he looked and saw one of his friends, a friend who had buried his own daughter several years prior to that. And his friend walking up in his face, he saw one who knew one who could relate and one who understood his own suffering and his own trial and he couldn't hold on any longer and he broke down in his friend's embrace. What a familiar story that might be to us. You see in grief, you respond and are affected by the presence of a like sufferer, of someone who's endured what you have endured, of someone you know knows what you're going through whose every word makes sense, whose every word hits right where it needs to hit. This is why mothers who suffer loss turn to other mothers. This is why fathers who have suffered loss turn to other fathers as they ask, how did you go through this? How did you endure this, this pain and this grief that the Lord has called you to endure? Well, brothers and sisters, what we have in Lamentations 3 is that exact scenario playing out before us. You see, as we come to chapter 3, we are in the visitation line of grief, and there we see the prophet approaching. And he comes before us, and we know he understands, and we know he knows grief, but we also know he knows the way out. We know he's walked it well in times past. We've seen him walk it, and now he approaches, and in our grief we listen to his words as he approaches in that line, as he even cups our our cheek in his hand and says, I know what you're going through, and looks deep within us and tells us, you need to turn to the goodness of the Lord. The time for lament has passed. That's where we've reached in chapter 3. And the prophet shows us this. The prophet has given ear to all griefs and lament and will continue after this in chapters 4 and 5. But in chapter 3, he shows to turn, to turn to the Lord. If you look at your Bibles, I want us to understand how this is broken down. You see in verses 25 through 27, all statements of the Lord's goodness, that the Lord is good. If you're taking notes in your Bible, you could almost circle this and say, God is good. That's what it is. That's what these verses are all saying. God is good even in suffering. And then you see in verses 28 through 30, a humble trust is called for. A humble patience is called for in the midst of this suffering because the Lord is good. And then in verses 31 to 33, you see the reasons, the rationale for why we can humbly trust It's in the character of God and how he acts in compassion towards his people. And that's how we'll go through that today, looking first in our first point at verses 25 through 27. Our God is good. Our God is good. Is there any statement that one in suffering needs to hear more than that? Needs to be reminded of, your God is good. To just reflect on that. How often doesn't 
doubts creep in at that. Even unknown to us is what is happening from the hand of a good God. Truly it is, but you must properly understand what you're going through. You must properly understand the heart of God. You must properly understand suffering to know this deep truth, which makes its statement that much more powerful, that much more meaningful from the prophet in the midst of a smoldering ruin of death and decay to say such words, to remind Israel God is good. To remind them, even as they would go in exile, carrying with them this scroll, this poem, that they would read in Babylon, that they would read amidst their own exile when they're discarded and counted of little worth, when they don't know if they'll be brought back, that God is good. In the original Hebrew, each line of this poetic verse begins with the word good. And in the ancient languages, to emphasize something, word order had a lot of meaning And so if you were reading it, this is a rough translation to approximate what would be going on in Hebrew, but it would be, Good is the Lord for those who wait for him. Good is the one who should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Good is it for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. It fronts it. It's, It's showing you God is good, and it's putting it in the verse first so that you'd see it. And again, follow the flow of this poem. This is stark. This, this brings you up short as you've been reading this because prior it's been poems about God is angry with us. God is, is upset. God is punishing us. We are in great grief and they're crying out to the Lord and there is no answer. But the prophet, in the midst of his own suffering, answers for God. God is good. In the original Hebrew, then, we see that highlighted. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, it says, to the soul who seeks him. In the midst of our suffering, waiting and seeking the Lord. Don't pass through trials without winning that hard-fought battle that you can sincerely say God is good. You, you You don't just arrive there. How does it come? It comes through processing a trial and suffering. It comes through asking questions and working through them with God's word in one hand as you're, as you're crying out to the Lord, as you're praying to Him and, and the word of God is open before you and you're wondering how does this make sense? And as you work through it, you will see, you will find that God is good, but you can't just get there by sitting in pain and suffering and that's what the prophet is saying. Make your lament, but put before you the goodness of God. Open his word and read there of the character of your God. Read there of the plans of God and especially read there the promises and fulfillment of what God has done in Christ. And there's no other other fulfillment, no other words we could take away than that truth. God is good. God is good to those who wait for him, to those who seek him. This can be a battle that you think you're losing. In fact, if you're in suffering, you likely feel as if you are are just running in defeat. And that's okay to feel that way. Feelings come and go. It's okay to feel that way as long as you are seeking to know the goodness of God in it. Because you have a trust that says this, I know God is good, and he's functioning that way now. He must be because he is, he is only good. All that he does for his people is good. 
Not that, that we describe what happens as good. It isn't good to see murder and cannibalism in this book. Those aren't good things. It's not that. It's the sovereign power of God that, that can so use the brokenness of the world, that can so use what is inherently bad to bring about what is good. To see that goodness of the Lord. Notice verse 25, it is to those who wait for God and to the soul who seeks him. I want you to, to look at this verse. Is that contradictory? Do we, do we seem to have something going on there? On one hand, it's saying wait, and on the other hand, it's, it's saying seek. Are, is that exclusive to each other? Can we wait for God and seek him at the same time? And the answer is absolutely. In fact, if we don't understand properly waiting and seeking in the midst of trial, we're going to be off the rails. We will be sinning or we'll be misunderstanding what's going on. You see, the soul that waits is describing how we sit in the midst of the trial and look to God and look to its fulfillment. You see, the waiting is the patience, the patience that knows God is working something out here and I must be quiet and sit silently and wait, trusting that he is working. But you see, doing that requires seeking God. It isn't just sit in the ashes and let time go by. That's just neglect. You see, you see, if you don't get the seeking of, of waiting, if you don't seek God in the midst of your waiting, then the trial is worthless to you. Then the suffering, the grief, whatever pain you're going, is just passing over your head. Because you must seek the Lord. But if all you're seeking is deliverance, if all you're seeking is, I must get out from underneath this yoke and underneath this burden, then you've missed the waiting. You see how it's not contradictory, it's in harmony. Wait for the Lord and seek him in the midst of your waiting. It's not inactivity, it's not neglect, nor is it outworking the problem. Turning to the Lord in all ways. Too often we don't seek him, we seek our own deliverance, and that's the opposite of waiting it's not contradictions to seek the Lord. You're not seeking God if all you do is allow that time to pass. And so what we need to ask ourselves in the midst of our pain is this. How am I simultaneously waiting for God and having my soul seek him in this trial? How am I waiting for him and how am I seeking him? Because the two must go together. And we see the next verse. Another proclamation of goodness it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. You know what this is saying? It is good when you're in a time of trial to be waiting for God to deliver you. Why is that good? Why is that anything but bad? You see, the very verse is implying you're in such a situation that's not good. It's hard. It's painful. But it is good for you to wait in that for the salvation of the Lord. Why? Because it is in that time when we are seeking him, when we find him. Where we find him in ways we never knew. Where we're able to see sin in our lives and, and feel the process of sanctification. When we're e even able to grasp God in this way. He's better. He's 
He's better for me. He's better to me in the midst of this trial than I even knew in times of happiness and pleasure. It's very difficult to seek the Lord, to find him, to know him when we're just operating as if everything is on track. And that's why it is good to wait patiently for the Lord. And don't doubt it. You see here the hope of this verse, salvation, deliverance, they're coming. The Lord will never leave you in despair. Now his ways of answering that are manifold. His, his ways of answering that can take time. It, it may not even be on this life for, for each of our, our trials that we face, but it often is. And the promise of the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, is that he will never leave you in this difficult time. He will always deliver you. And you ask, how can that be? How do I know that? Look no further than Jesus Christ. Look no further than the deliverance of God. Your deliverance has come already. You know that it's true. Jesus isn't, isn't just the promise of this. He is the fulfillment of it, and you have him now already. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And you can even see this as, as the history of Israel progresses. It was good as they went into exile and learned how to be a kingdom of God when they weren't in the promised land. It was good that there would be those faithful who would search the scriptures, who would learn of the character of God to bring them back from exile and yet to be awaiting a greater exodus, a greater fulfillment. It was good because it was setting up the need for Christ. Yes, the Lord is good and knows what he's doing. The deliverance of the Lord, this verse is saying, is not in doubt, but what is in doubt is the manner in which we wait for it. The deliverance is coming. It will always come. But how are you waiting? Are you waiting, seeking him? Here the prophet is looking to our eyes. He's saying it to us. It is good to wait quietly. He's basically saying it is good to accept your lot in life. It is good to accept what you're going through knowing that God is there. Seek to cultivate that attitude of Christ, that not my own, but your will be done. You see how Christ had fulfilled that as well. There was in Christ such a strong waiting and seeking of God in the midst of what he was going through, even in the midst of being forsaken, and don't miss that. Our Savior's faith did not waver even as he could tell the Lord, why have you forsaken me? He knew the plan of God and he fulfilled it. That is how Christ did it. Verse 27 says, It is good for a man that he bears the yoke in his youth. Let's, let's update this. It is good for you to learn to bear trials, to learn the sovereign plan of God while you're young. And that's true. You see, the yoke and that understanding is to bear a yoke of suffering or to bear the hand of God that he, he brings you into suffering, to bear that yoke. It takes an acknowledgement that God is over this, that God is working through it. He's sovereign over the difficulty. He's placed this burden on you, and it is good that you would learn it even while you're young to stand in that and to wait for him in that. Now, this verse isn't only an application for young people, but it certainly is at least that. Young people, 
boys and girls, how do you interpret, how do you handle pain or, or disappointment or your own suffering? Is it, with, is it with anger or frustration? Is it with neglect? When you're going through a trial, do you seek even now to say to myself, how do I learn to bear this yoke well for the Lord? And, and in any one of our trials, we can learn these lessons. You can learn deep lessons, even through very minor circumstances. In fact, that's how you learn it best. And so, youth of the congregation, boys and girls, it is good that you would learn the lesson of Lamentations to know and seek for the goodness of God in all of your own trials, in all of your own disappointments. As I said, it's, it's not only, though, an application for youth. We could say, in essence, what this verse is meaning is learn this lesson now. It only gets harder the, the, the more we would run away from this, the more we establish patterns that respond poorly to difficulties or grief or suffering and we don't handle it well. It only becomes more difficult to learn the lesson of God then. And so what the prophet is saying is learn this now. Ask yourself this question. How do I handle disappointment? How do I handle what I don't want to go through in life? Is it Christ-like? Or is it rather impatience, without trust, without submission, and thus without humility? Even God's plan for our difficulties is better than our plan for pleasure. I want to say that again. Even God's plan for our difficulties is better than our own plan for pleasure. We're reminded of this all the time. I was reminded of it a little while ago. I had uh, a various tasks I, I didn't want to do, and, and the way my mind works is I look past it. I want to be done with this, whatever situation or circumstance that I have to do and take care of, and I look with great pleasure, I look with great hope for the time after it. I'm not saying this is a good way of handling it. I'm saying this is often the way I revert to it. And you, you, you just are enduring and you're hoping, I'm just going to get through this, this activity or this time that I, I, I'm not looking forward to, but after that I'll be so happy to have it off my plate. And I was looking forward to it. God, in his grace, let me get through the time I, I wasn't hoping for, didn't want to go through. He gave me grace to get through it. And then I reached that time, and I was so excited to just feel happy. You know, that burden's gone, right? Now I can really just enjoy life. And at that time, I didn't feel that way. And rather, at that time, I, I was almost in, in a more difficult or more frustrated state than I was beforehand. And, and I was thinking to myself, why, why would that be? Why wouldn't God just give you pleasure? Why can't I feel happy now that I've seen his hand to guide me through it? I'm sure we all have thoughts like that. But this text comes to mind then. If God had given me ease or pleasure in that time, my day would have been spent in happiness and pleasure, yes. But would it have been spent in prayer? Would it have been spent turning to the Lord? I know myself well enough to say absolutely not. I would have just enjoyed the day. I would have just been, been happy that what I didn't want to do is done. You know, it was because of the trial, and for all of us, it's because of the trial that we seek the Lord. And so life would have been easy if we get our desires, but would it be good? 
It's vital that we understand that difference. Life could be easy without the trials, but would it be good? Well, the prophet here is saying, what is good? It is good to know God. It is good to learn patience. It is good to learn submission. It is good to know what? God's love. And you will not know that love in, without responding this way in the trial. You can't. We know God in this. God's active, compassionate goodness is the basis for our humble, hopeful patience. God's active, compassionate goodness is the basis for our humble, hopeful patience. That's what we see in our second point in this next block of three verses. This point is that our faith must produce humble patience. That's what these verses are saying. Our faith must produce humble patience. That we accept it. Verse 28 shows the fruit of being teachable. Being teachable when God deals severely even with his children that we as people would not rebel, that we would instead even willingly submit to his authority. Impatience comes when one does not obey God or prepare himself to bear this yoke. And then we are, as like Calvin says about this verse, if we are impatient in response, we're like an untamed beast. What does that mean? A, a tamed animal bears the yoke, bears the bit in its mouth, is able to be led, is able to be to used for the good of God's people, is able to be utilized as a tool. It's better to be tamed in this way than untamed. Are we those who respond with patience and trust as the Lord places a yoke on us, as he puts a, a bit in our mouth? Do we, do we buck up against that with impatience and saying, and, and not even willing to endure? Or do we echo our Savior's words, your will be done? This truth is eloquently put in a poem by Amy Carmichael. I love this quote. In acceptance lieth peace. In acceptance lieth peace. Accepting God's will brings peace. The only way to peace is acceptance, is acceptance. But the only way to acceptance is humility before God's will. You cannot accept your situation unless you are humble before God's will and trusting in his character and his goodness to know it's for the best. The only way to do that is then to trust him. And that's why the prophet is here presenting so much of the character of God. It's all grounded in who God is. It is the fact that God is faithful. It is the fact that God is loving. It is the fact that God is good and sovereign. Then that we can accept the yoke he places on us. And when we accept that, we do have peace. And acceptance lieth peace. And I ask again, do you accept the burden of your life willingly or unwillingly? Is your attitude one striving to humbly submit to whatever is going on that you don't want to go through, or is it bucking against it? Basically saying to the Lord, you don't know best, and you are not good. That's what we have to say if we're not willing to bear a yoke. Verse 29, let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. 
What is this, putting his mouth in the dust? The picture here is of one falling prostrate before his master, so close to the ground that his face is in the dirt, meaning he is submitting to whatever his master orders. And the prophet is saying even here, it is good to put your mouth in the dust, to be humble and to trust that your master knows what he's doing. These are hard words to suffering people, but this prophet knows that. But you see throughout all these words, it's not just, it's not just pain. It's not just, you need to do this. You need to get better at this. It's not browbeating. It's bringing before you the truth, but comfort. Look at how he finishes it. There may yet be hope. That's the point for a people who were judged by God. Fall prostrate before your master. There may yet be hope. He knows that the Lord will deliver the people who turn to him and trust him. There is deliverance there. There is hope in humble trust and submission to the Lord. Fall prostrate before him. This is what God is saying. It is actually the wise who will silently put his mouth in the dust and in silence accept what God is doing. Why? Because he knows God is better and has better plans than his own. We need to do this in the times when we're confused and we don't understand what is right and we don't even know what to pray for. Put your mouth before the Lord in silence. Seek him. Trust him. Verse 30, he mentions another fruit of patience. That God's people must endure even injuries done to us by wickedness. What this verse is getting at is that Sometimes we're willing to, to bear difficulties when we know the source, when we know, okay, this is from God's hand. It's something that couldn't be controlled. The only one responsible for it is God. This disaster that came upon us, no one else caused us. It's God's hand. I'll submit. Now, what he's saying is there's even times in which you must endure the hand of that suffering, even when it comes not so clearly from God's hand, but from an enemy's. This is the, the people's situation at that time. They're being struck in very painful ways by heathen nations, by nations that are unrighteous, that nations are rightly called wicked, and God has used them to humble his people. That's a hard pill to swallow. Throughout all of the Old Testament, you, you repeatedly read of the pain that the people have to endure judgment from the hands of those who were worse than them. You see again the humility that takes to, to even accept the will of the Lord when it comes to you from those who are wicked in and of themselves. Those who don't even have your own good in their minds, but you trust that God has in his. And we come to the third block of verses in our third point. Our God is active in our suffering. Our God is active in our suffering. This is verses 31 to 33. These three verses explain the rationale behind why we can humbly trust. It shows God's activity in it. It, in essence, then, is the reason we can put our mouths in the dust and be silent. Because we know these truths. First, we humbly submit because the Lord will not, not cast off forever. The Lord will not cast off forever. God's disciplining hand and the distant felt from God, he will not cause to always endure. He will not cast off forever. He brings out of difficulties. 
We have to understand how he does this. It isn't always in the deliverance from the circumstance or the trial, but it is in Christ fully seen. That's, that's all of what the history of Israel is leading to. The whole, the whole point of the exile and what was going on was showing them that their deliverance came through the hand of God, through their mediator and Messiah, and that he was the one to whom they needed to turn, that he's the true exodus. That's the whole point. Then God will not cast off forever. Look to Christ and know that that is your foundation. He has not cast you off forever. He's given you his son. Your answer is here. We'll have no patience unless there's hope. And this is what gives us hope, because the Lord will not always cast off. Patience arises from knowing that the Lord will save his people, he will deliver, and that we're called to learn that patience through it. Romans 15, verse 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. We might have hope in the midst of it, trusting in the Lord. So that's the first reason, the rationale for it. God will not cast off forever. Secondly, we humbly submit because he works compassion in it. He works compassion in it. You won't get a more honest and true statement that puts the sovereignty of God in our humility than verse 32. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion. He does not treat us without compassion even in the midst of the grief. The compassion of God is his steadfast love to his people When you see the Lord, you are coming to one who loves you more than you love yourself, one who is more faithful to you than you would be. He's compassionate in it. So we're we're building that. What what is the prophet saying here? Listen, this this stroke of God's hand, this disciplinary strike against you, this will not last forever. God is compassionate even in the grief. And third... We humbly submit because we know God's heart and thus intent. We know God's heart and thus intent. Verse 33 is rather strange if you were just to read it. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. It's also interesting that it comes here. The the picture of Lamentations may have made you think that that's exactly what God's doing, that he is afflicting from his heart. That the, 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 what they were facing was so horrific that God must be taking delight in causing this for it to be this bad. But no, the heart of God, he does not afflict from his heart. And that means then we have an established truth about his intent. If he's not afflicting from his heart, if it's not his heartfelt desire to strike his children, it means the strike has something greater in mind. It means there's a better intent that he's willing to even go against, as we speak in this human way, his own heart. He is willing to set aside what even grieves him for his intent and what he's accomplishing in it is greater. And this is where you see again in your, in your grief and you say, why, Lord, why would you bring this pain upon me? And the answer is actually that he's also brought this pain upon himself, even more so than you. 
he does not afflict from his heart. He does not grieve the children of man from his heart. But he has better reasons, a wiser plan. And so he's willing to take even more pain than what you're going through and to give you even a portion of that for his perfect purpose. Our God is good. That's the, the continual refrain. God is good. One commentator says about this verse, God not afflicting from his heart means that in God's heart there's always a more fundamental purpose than the affliction. In God's heart there's always a more fundamental purpose than the affliction. Affliction of God's people is never for its own sake. Punishment is God's alien work, which he does after much warning. That's true. Punishment, in that sense, can be properly called the alien work of God. It is not his desire to do this. It is not his desire to afflict, but he is just and perfect. He warns. He gave the people of Israel hundreds of years of warnings before this stroke fell, and yet even that was not because he found some enjoyment in causing pain. It was for a greater purpose. God doesn't delight in the miseries of men. John Calvin says about this verse here, that this verse is here placed so that we would not be afraid and doubt God with these kind of thoughts, wondering if God is pleased by the misery Wondering if God's pleased by this, no, rather he puts a check on us and declares that God does not afflict from his heart, that is, willingly, as though he delighted in the evils of men, because he wishes all to be innocent, and thus to have reason for acquitting them. But, yet he willingly condemns the guilty, because this is his duty. He would have them be saved, were they not, as it were, by force to drive him to rigor. Or to justice. God afflicts because it's his duty. We began this morning with a story. I want to end with one in a sermon from Dale Ralph Davis. He tells this story, and it captures well this text, and it captures well especially the heart of God that causes grief and lament at times because of a greater purpose, but not his heart. This is the story. There was a time during the war between the states when Edwin Stanton, who was Lincoln's Secretary of War, was working one night in his office with one of his clerks. The clerk found Stanton in his office faced by a mother and children of a soldier who had been condemned to be shot as a deserter. They were all on their knees before Stanton, pleading for the life of their loved one. They were making their emotionally laden case, and he listened, standing there in cold silence, and at the end of their heartbreaking sobs and pleas, he answered briefly that the man must die. That crushed the little family, and Mr. Stanton turned, apparently unmoved, and walked into his private room. The clerk thought Stanton was a brutal tyrant, that he, that, that he would have behaved in this way. But afterwards, he discovered Stanton leaning over a desk, his face buried in his hands, his frame shaking with sobs, saying with a low moan of anguish, God, help me to do my duty. God, help me to do my duty. Now, this verse is speaking to us in a human way. 
It's describing the heart of God in human terms. And so we can say in that sense, it, it, it isn't accurately depicting that if we put too much humanity behind it. So that's a qualifying way to say Scripture often does this. It speaks of God in human terms. But what it's trying to grasp by presenting even this human way of describing it is the heart of God that in one sense is like that. He does not afflict from his heart, but he does his duty even when it hurts. Even when it causes pain, but his will is better. Davis makes this application. Sometimes what appears on the surface of our suffering isn't nearly the whole story. And he says, this tells me I have reason for hope. Not that we have the details, not that we understand all of what God is doing, not that we know the timetable for relief, but he says, I don't know the method of help, but he's shown me his heart. And so we have enough. That's what's going on here. You have enough in your suffering when God shows you his heart. And that's why you're able to trust. And that's why you're able to patiently endure. And that's why you're able to stand. As you know the heart of God, you're able to trust. It's as if God is saying here, it's not from his heart that he afflicts or grieves the sons of man, meaning, well, he does it, but his heart's not in it. But his plan certainly is. See, we have all the more reason to confess and trust the heart of God, do we not? Again, as we point to Christ in it. And again, as we point to Jesus' lament on the cross, the, the lament of Christ so stands in, in line with Lamentation's message that he would say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We, we focus mostly on the fact that he was forsaken, but do we enough focus on my, my God, my God, that even at that time of distress and suffering, God the Father was still his God. And thus even, is it not a statement of the faithfulness of God that he would still say, my God? If all we can utter in the midst of grief is my God, my God, why have you forsaken of me and mean that truly? We are on the path of lamentations. We are on the path of deliverance. As long as we cling to that truth, he is our God. And look at the good heart of your God. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we hope to have grasped and even caught just that brief glimmer of your heart. We see it shine far more clearly in the life and death of our Savior. But in the, the words of Lamentations, how eloquently put by the prophet there, that you are a God who is good, and you are a God who delivers, who does not cast off forever who afflicts and does not grieve the children of man because your heart is in it, but for your greater purpose. And so, Father, with whatever we face, we pray we would put our mouths in the dust in humility and trust in the good heart of the God we know.
in fact, the God we've seen come. And Lord, we are thankful that you care so much for your people and that you, in fact, even in the midst of our griefs, bear more pain than what we do. We praise you for being this perfect Lord and for saving us. We ask this in Jesus' name.